no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Good to be back on the podcast with you, Ralph. It is. It's been it's been a bit of distance. Um, we weren't able to enjoy your company last week, um, but now we're back. We're back on top, and we have a special guest for you today. Yeah, this is almost became like eating. Like I have to kind of fill my fix of doing the uh, the podcast yeah. episode to, to make my week feel fulfilled. That's right. well, got to that point. Yeah, shortly we won't have this you know, plethora of much smarter, much nicer people to bring <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah. So we'll be back to our old 14 year old <laughs> just talking to about each other. the media stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because uh, there still is not a shortage of stuff to complain about, despite the, the rate at which we're racing to the, uh, either the end of the world, or if you happen to be a flat earther, the edge of the world, <laughs> uh, off of which you just fall endlessly, we, I guess. We can, uh, we can come up with a, a, you know, a second podcast just for flat earthers i don't think that's that's unreasonable of an ask well i yeah i have to tell you i was in this is another digression right (laughs) um i was in class talking about the constitution right because our culture our american culture here is built on the idea of this constitution it's this written document and i was trying to talk about how sometimes things aren't in one place in time they're everywhere they're distributed or whatever but we do have a constitution right and and it's i think it's sealed in glass and it's yeah i've seen it yeah it's it's over, there it's over a tunnel yeah so if an emergency happens they're just going to drop it into the tunnel and i said to the class and at the bottom of the tunnel is cthulhu who will eat the constitution <laughs> and then regain control and dominance over the planet earth so there you go well you mentioned it we're very lucky uh that today and we are recording this after the conversation we might talk a little bit about the conversation we just had uh with a writer for the new yorker a guy named mark singer and he's been at the new yorker since 1974 he's contributed hundreds of talk of the town stories talk a lot in on our conversation about a specific a piece that he did in 1997 that we'll uh, we'll go into a little bit more. But the other thing that's interesting about Mark, us being at the University of Oklahoma, is that he's a native Oklahoman. In fact, he wrote a book about Oklahoma City that was that is titled "Funny Money" about the collapse of the Penn Square Bank. It appeared in the the New Yorker in 1985, and then uh, became published as a book as well. And he's uh, written several other books, including Somewhere in America, and a book called Character Studies that was published in 2005. But he comes back to here frequently, and we were really lucky to have him here in Norman for what I think it was a really really special conversation. We, yeah, and then we will also, in the process of the conversation, be talking about his most recent book. That's right. Which is a book called Trump and Me, uh, which was published in 2016, published a couple of months before the election happened. And <clears throat> at the center of it is a piece that um, Singer wrote uh, for The New Yorker that was a portrait of Donald Trump that is 
stunning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so he uh, took that piece and, and bracketed it with a couple of other pieces and published this book so we could get a, a, a good snapshot of it. And I think one of the things that makes it so valuable is that, you know, Singer is a genius at creating portraits of people. And that's kind of what his what he's really, really good at. What he's really good at is making people that are, you know, kind of a distance from you really like tangible right next to you kind of people, whether you like the result of that or not. Yeah. They're kind of right next to you. Right. And and if you read a celebrity profile today, you know, you read something out of uh uh, ESPN or GQ or whatever it is, I'm, I'm naming the ones that I, I might read, you know, it, there's this specific formula that, uh, you know, is like, I walk into the coffee shop and, you know, the person sitting there in, a, in this type of shirt and they like, sort of explain the scenery. This is not, I mean, Mark Singer spent hundreds of hours with Trump over the course of a year, basically putting together this profile piece. So this isn't a, a walk in and have it have a lunch date uh, with a celebrity. This 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 uh, story goes into um, uh, being on a private plane with him, going to Trump Tower, uh, going to uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, so there's a lot of places in in which this this uh, profile spans, which uh, which is a lot of the the fascinating part is is uh, being the fly on the wall uh, in Trump in 1996 and 97. And I don't know what the reaction was like then, but reading it now, it's like yeah, I know that like th- I know this guy like mm-hmm. like this this totally sounds like Donald Trump uh, because the the way in which he characterizes him is uh is pretty on point with the the president that we've come all to know mm-hmm. and you know one of the questions that that i think comes up that's implicit in our conversation and you know we got to hear mark singer talk a little bit earlier today is sort of like the the thereness of it that there's you know what's the relationship between what you're seeing on the outside and what's going on underneath and it's mysterious because it's entirely possible that everything you're seeing on the surface is all there is. Right. That there isn't, you know, that there isn't, <laughs> there yeah. isn't anything else going yeah, on. Yeah, I, I really get that that from the piece. Um, Trump's either unwillingness to look inward or maybe he's gone there before and doesn't want to uh, externally reveal that to other people or, you know, I don't, we, I think that's, that's the mystery of Trump. And certainly the, yeah, it's, it's, it's the complete, I think it's the complete contradiction of the know thyself theory, right? The idea going back to, you know, ancient Western civilization that you're, you know, the quality of your life is, is developed to the extent that you know yourself. Yeah. And that is not a factor here. Yeah. (laughs) It's just not a thing. So, so we're going to recommend that if you haven't read it, it's highly suggested uh, a read that would be really worth your time to do before going forward within the podcast itself. The original article in New Yorker uh, was published in May 19th, 1997 called Trump Solo. You can find it online. And if you want an extended version of that, uh, Trump and Me is the book that has recently come out, a uh, 2016 publish. We will add links to both of those within the show notes so you can easily get to those. But feel free if you have to pause the podcast and come back and listen to the interview. I think it'd be really worth your 
your while to have the context of that specific article. We go into other things as well. Uh, we go into uh, a little bit about John McCain, uh, which is a really interesting story uh, that he has. It's sort of been circulated around. We've got we go into his history with Oklahoma, but have I think that being a large part of the uh, the, the piece, and and then just the opportunity to engage with some of his writing and and see the style before hearing him, I think is always a pleasure. Well, I, I look forward to hearing that conversation that we had. Yeah. <laughs> we have become unstuck in time, as Billy Pilgrim might put it. That's right. And I imagine that the conversation would be starting right now. <laughs> Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the episode. Well, I'm happy to be here. One of the reasons that we're really glad to have Mark Singer here is the, the book that was published, Trump and Me. Uh, and can, I, can I share the back with people? Sure. Because it's such a, or do you want to talk about this a little bit? Well, it's a long, it's a long story. Um, basically, uh, I went, after I wrote about Donald Trump in 1997, he was offended he complained to my editor, but not to me directly, but then later that year, in one of his ghost-written books, he attacked me for a couple of pages, and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm, I, I, if, if everything else turns to dust, I will still have this going for me. <laughs> and then I didn't respond to that. I just was thrilled by it. He attacked my looks, he attacked my character, and it was really pretty funny. And then in 19, excuse me, several years later, 2005, I think, or six, I published a, a collection of profiles, New Yorker profiles, called Character Studies, and it was reviewed in the New York Times favorably, except the reviewer said the only, the only piece in this collection, that, that were, the only time Singer throws and lands a sucker punch is in his profile of Donald Trump, who's too easy a target with neither the wit nor the foot speed to defend himself. <laughs> so that provoked Trump into writing a letter to the New York Times Book Review in which he attacked me again. And he attacked the guy who wrote this review. And it was it was ad hominem and, and uh, a letter, as I say, written without advice of counsel. But boy, did it, it make me glad. And I had, I had fellow you know, writers calling me up saying, how can I get Trump to attack me? <laughs> so I wrote Trump a thank you note for that. Um, and uh, I also actually sent him some money. I, I was going to send him $1,000, and I realized, you know, I don't have $1,000. So I sent him a check <laughs> for $37.82. And he sent my letter. I, I, in the letter, I said, dear Donald, thank you so much for your wonderful letter to the New York Times book review, several friends have called or written to say uh, that it's the funniest thing they've read in a long time. And I, 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 I'm, I'm sure that you're aware that it's considered bad form to uh, pay the people who review one's books, but I'm nevertheless enclosed a check for $37.82, uh, uh, a small token of my enormous gratitude. And then uh, because he been, I said, and I also enclosed two Band-Aids because you seem unable to stop picking at this particular scab. These should come in handy. And I, I thought that probably wasn't going to be the end of it. And um, and and then two weeks, ten days later, whatever, I get a Trump organization 
return address envelope addressed to me. Uh, inside is my letter. He's returned it, and across the bottom, he's written, uh, Mark, you are a total loser. <laughs> and your book and writings sucks. <laughs> and so uh, I wrote this later in 2016, published uh, this book, Trump and Me. I, I reprinted the original profile and added a couple of chapters, book ending the profile. And uh, I, I, I got the idea to do it uh, late in the spring, March or April, and, and we, the publisher was able to actually have it in bookstores uh, by late July before the Republican convention, maybe mid-July. It, mm -hmm. it was published in the, in the United Kingdom and in, in England even before that, in the beginning of July. So there was no time to send this book around the galleys around to get anybody to... You know, blurb it. So, so I just said, "Wait a second, I've got an idea for a blurb." <laughs> so the blurb on the book is, uh, "Mark, you are a total loser, and your book and writing sucks, Donald Trump." Yeah, you, uh, you you have the story, and I almost don't want to say it just to, to to ruin it. But there is a scene with you on Trump's plane with Trump's son watching a movie. Yes, and that. Uh, would you, would you mind just explaining well, we, we were, kind of what you were feeling in that in that specific moment? You know, when I'm when I'm reporting, I'm just so happy to be reporting. I, I there, whatever it is, it's the quest or, or what it is, and I and I really, um, you know, there's the shark, and there's the remora. You know, that little sort of pilot fish that goes uh -huh. along outside, and I've always been drawn to the remora, not to the shark. I mean, I've always been drawn to the periphery and, and I'm very comfortable on the periphery. I think that's just sort of a kind of detachment that maybe got me to journalism in the first place. So I'm not judging any of this. This plane had, you know, other well-known people on it and it, and it did have a gold-plated, uh, you know, toilet and, and uh, other fixtures in the bathroom. And <laughs> and there was a movie that, that somebody brought him. Uh, it was a Nora Ephron movie, Michael, with uh, John Travolta. And it was not a great movie. And they started to play that on the plane. And after about 15 minutes, Trump, get get this movie out of here. And, and, and then he puts on a Jean-Claude Jean -Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> blood sport <laughs> and he had and Eric Trump was then about 13 years old well, what is he now 12 <laughs> so he, he has Eric uh, fast forwarding this movie eliminating all the plot exposition <laughs> just to get to the fight scenes which were vicious fight scenes and at one point I, I just remember there was like like this sort of pretty skinny lean guy who delivers this crushing blow to the scrotum of this really beefy guy <laughs> and um and i laughed you know it just you know immediately you know just burst out laughing and trump shouts at me he says he says you're laughing you're laughing at this he says you want to say that donald trump is watching this ridiculous martial arts film but are you going to put in there that you were loving it too and um and that quote appears in the profile <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Actually, it kind of, because I've been talking about this so much lately because of the, you know, the whole Guerrilla Channel thing that happened, the idea that the White House staff 
actually it's, it turned out to be satire that oh yeah yeah yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. but for just a, for a little chunk of time people were buying into it and it was because of our desire to like have that be the and actually what you're saying is part of that desire too yeah, like we yeah, want him to be yeah. that defensive of Jean-Claude I, Van Damme I, 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 I think you're you are the proof that the that the the gorilla channel may exist <laughs> well they, the uh, they, they turned up on uh, MSNBC when the, when the, when the gorilla channel uh, broke it was his hope <laughs> that people fell for and and because he was trying to you know cut through all the exposition uh-huh. just have right. the gorillas fighting <laughs> just have them fight <laughs> and, 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 and Joy Reid was on for somebody that night and, and it, was, it was it was Chris Hayes it was, it was a, all, all in with Chris Hayes so they had that thing one thing two feature yeah. and so uh, they, they showed the gorilla channel thing and then they said well how, how did how did somebody get the idea for this and they said we think we know and then they, <laughs> that'll be thing too and they come back and they've they've got my, uh, my Trump profile up there and they say this is this is probably the provenance <laughs> of the gorilla channel this is yeah at the end of it uh on some days he'll watch the gorilla channel for 17 hours straight <laughs> <laughs> He kneels, he kneels in front of the TV with his face about four inches from the screen and says encouraging things to the gorillas like, the way you hit that other gorilla was good. <laughs> well, thank you Let for that. Let me just say I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you, we, we were fortunate enough to have you speaking uh, to some of our students at a lunch meeting earlier, uh, talking about your career, talking about some of the things that you have written, including the profile that you did on Donald Trump in May of 97, as well as your book, Trump and Me. One of the things that you mentioned was that you, uh, uh, as preparing for the book, you had read everything about Donald Trump leading up to that piece. And I'd just be curious to hear, how was Trump portrayed in the media prior to your article? I think that Trump was a really good copy was was the attitude about Trump then, especially let's say if you talk about one part of the media the the tabloids in new york he was he was a you know indispensable um, figure and um but he was not he was not taken seriously by most i don't know how you put it sophisticated journalists. Uh, maybe that's not quite right. He he was not. Um, he he was he was entertaining, but nobody really was looking at very carefully at what his businesses were actually doing. It was quite opaque. Um, it was they were privately held, you know, company uh, Trump the Trump Organization, and I think that. You know, every few years, the you know Vanity Fair or the New Yorker uh, would publish a profile of him. That's how I ended up doing it. Tina Brown had published about him uh, a profile of him when she was at Vanity Fair, and then she decided she wanted another one. And uh, I was I was the lion, or I was no, I was thrown to the lion, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> I um. I, I I wasn't paying super close attention until I had to read about him, until I'd write about him. So I really did need to go back and mm-hmm. see what had been written. And this 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 is a guy who was oddly, given how thin his skin is, if if you insulted him, he would still come back for more because his need, his neediness, his 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 
thirst for just attention was bottomless. And uh, so I, I think that a lot of us regarded him as, as, a, as, a, as a buffoon, um, reasonably entertaining. And the people who wrote gossip columns, you know, just... They, 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 they wouldn't have bread on the table if they didn't have Donald Trump feeding them <laughs> stories. So, uh, there was a, a tr- tweet that I read recently from Jay Rosen of NYU, mm-hmm. um, and he, he he had a comment. This is in the last week, saying he said there there is no White House really, not in the sense of the term that was previously understood. There's just Trump and people who work in the building. They have discarded the "we need one story" rule. It's deeper than incompetence. It's a rejection of legibility. And, uh, as a democratic norm. And my question is, doing your profile, did you talk to anyone who worked with Trump or get a sense of what that workplace relationship was and how, how, how his employees uh, thought about them? Well, that was a pretty controlled environment. The people who I could, you know, he, first of all, uh, people signed non-disclosure agreements in order to work for Trump. And when I was at the office, they were they were basically you know his minions were were there. Um, the people that I really got the most useful information from were, as I uh, might have said, in, people involved in in the real estate business. You know the, the the serious major New York real estate developers didn't even consider him one of them. Particularly, they looked down on him. Um, even though he had moved into Manhattan, and, and Trump Tower was a, was a remarkable accomplishment, actually, putting together that that property. Trump has, has in my view, as a real estate person, made one, did one or two really successful things, and the rest of it was just an extension of branding, and there was nothing special. But when he fixed the skating rink in in, in uh, Woman Rink in, in Central Park. Uh, that was a, a job that the city had bungled for years, woman rink, and, and Trump volunteered to do it, and and um, at cost, he said. I don't know how true that is. It seems unlikely, but nevertheless, he finished ahead of schedule, and, and it worked, and he leveraged that enormously over the years. It, it, it led soon thereafter to kind of silly speculation about Donald Trump running for president. Who would ever thought of that? This is in the 1970s or 80s, I guess. The people that worked for him, as near as I could tell, were incredibly loyal mm. to him. The only the only negative thing I um, I ever remember, you might, you might have heard the story during the campaign about his butler at Mar-a-Lago, this guy, Tony mm-hmm. Seneca, he was a former mayor in a town in West Virginia, and then he ended up as Trump's butler. And he was, you know, good at his job. He, he, during the, the campaign, he he made some horribly racist remarks that got him in trouble. But when I remember when I was having a conversation with him down at Mar-a-Lago, I, I'd flown down there with Trump and other people, and he was describing the restoration of Mar-a-Lago, what, what Trump had done once he had bought the property and, and and was converting it into this private club. And he said something like, some of the um, some of the restoration here is so detailed and fine, it's it's not even Trump like. Mm-hmm. So that that was a, a guy who was saying this is a guy who's all surfaces and I get that. And Trump was 
And that, that's that's what Trump was about. He was about what you saw on the outside, whatever he was could project. You know, this sort of Oprah Buffa parody of wealth that he uh, represented was something that people aspired to. That that was that was how Trump originally became a, a kind of oddly populist figure, because working class, middle class. People in Queens and, and 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 Staten Island and you know generally the outer boroughs of New York, and and then once The Apprentice happened, people beyond New York looked at that and said, "I want some of that. I like that." This you know, is, this one of the things I think is interesting is that he, you know, in your description of him, you know, he's a New Yorker, but. He sort of isn't, right? At the same Correct. time, he's kind of, and you know, as, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, so how did he get away with being a New Yorker and being supported by all of these, you know, middle of the country people who were rejecting the coasts? And then I started thinking, he's not really a person of a place, is he? He he is very much a person of Queens, but 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 the Queens uh, that he grew up in, the, the borough there, that 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 is a. Uh, traditionally, the demographic is more working class, middle mm-hmm. class, not like Manhattan. And, you know, Trump uh, made the big push into Manhattan, something his father had never seen the need to do. But he went there, in effect, as, uh, you know, an outlier, an interloper. And he he was determined to gain respectability there, and he has never gotten what he wanted he he would give strategically give money to this or that charity the the way that he was able to move into manhattan was actually by leveraging his father's connections in in queens and brooklyn more brooklyn the the uh the, the political clubhouse that, that the then mayor of New York, uh, Abe Beam, came from, Fred Fred Trump was really wired into that. And so when Trump was doing his first project, which was a renovation of a of the old Commodore Hotel near Grand Central, and it became a Hyatt, and he did it with the Hyatt company, uh, basically Abe Beam, you know, there were, there were people who did not want to grant certain permits and, and Maybe Beam just put his arm around Trump and said, "Give him whatever he wants." And from there, he went. He went to Trump Tower. But it, it, when he did it, it was with so much flash and glitz that that was déclassé, as 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 he was seen there. And so he had this chip on his shoulder always. I, I remember when I was writing about him, I was reporting about him. We were at a hotel at, in Columbus Circle at 59th and uh, Central Park West, and. That, that had been, that he developed. It's the Trump International Hotel, and there's a restaurant there. None of the money was his. He wasn't bankable at this point in the 90s. There was, the money was from Asia. And he was getting a, 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 a an apartment there, I think a penthouse apartment, and uh, the parking concession in this building. And that was on the back end of the deal. This, this was after everybody else had made their money. Trump was going to make his, and, and he, but he was helping with the development. And we were leaving that. There was a reception there, and, and we were leaving it and driving all the way from 59th and Central Park West to 57th and 5th Avenue. You know, most people would walk that, but of course he was in a car, and uh, he, the car was about to pull away, and he jumped out of the car, stopped the car, and he jumped out of the car, and he went over to the, there were some parking lot attendants who were outside the garage, and he walked over to these guys, and he said, 
I just want to tell you guys, you're going to have a job here for a long time. <laughs> well, those guys, if they were still alive, voted for him. And, uh -huh. and, and that was an instinct that he had maybe because he felt that he was an outsider, that in that city, if you, if you kind of identified with the working class somehow, especially the trade unions appreciated Trump. Um, the fact that he was a social climber didn't didn't turn those people off. Once it came to becoming a, a national political figure, I just think his diction, his his whole screw you kind of presentation of himself appealed to a lot of people because they, they 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 had a screw you feeling. And why they didn't see Trump as part of that that oligarchy, the plutocracy, is 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 the question that you're asking, mm -hmm. and they just. They just saw him as as the outsider that he kind of couldn't help being. He was an outsider just in terms of his style. It was so garish, mm -hmm. so over the top, and uh, and 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 he never got over his resentment that he wasn't accepted into the clubs that he wanted to be accepted to. So he started his own clubs. You know, <laughs> I you know you know I was always really sad. My father unfortunately passed away before our current political climate came into its own. But uh, and my father was more or less a Truman Democrat, working class mm -hmm. guy, and. It, I, I just it would have been hilarious what he would have had to have said about this this particular manifestation. I don't think he would have been a supporter at all because I think he was, you know, uh, uh, my dad wouldn't. And I'm not bragging or anything like that, but I mean, my dad kind of, you know, Chicago working class saw through this. He could see it. Yeah. So, I it, it's 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 an interesting fact. I think Donald Trump is the most transparent the most legible of men. I, I really do. And so if you're a connoisseur of lying, which I kind of am, uh, you, you really, there is a perverse pleasure. And, and, and the other thing is, as whatever you think of Donald Trump, especially if you do not like him, the conundrum, the, the, the paradox is he's addictive. Mm -hmm. We cannot look away. We need to look away more. Yeah, but we cannot help ourselves. So uh, I, th I think that yes, there are definitely whether they're old school Democrats or even traditional Republicans who rejected him because they they could tell this is a person who believes in nothing other than his own well being. Mm -hmm. Well, it's you know, it's interesting that you know when when people consider tweets as part of like official political communication, it's it's just kind of terrifying because you're right. I mean, that's those are the points where one would think that a responsible media would say, you know, maybe we shouldn't take the bait, but. How do you not? You well, know? when he started doing it during the campaign, it was so novel. You know, his 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 idea was he was going over the heads of the traditional media and and communicating directly with, you know, the people. And uh, he's got I don't I don't you you tell me how many million followers he has, but they're a bunch. I saw him. I, I just I follow him on Twitter, and I was I noticed the other over the weekend. He tweeted something completely gratuitous about the fake news media. It wasn't, it wasn't responding to any particular story uh -huh. or anything like this, but it was just a wholesale uh, assault on the fake news media. And, um, and he had tweeted it like 13 seconds before I happened to see it. And within two minutes, he was, uh, he was up to, you know, seven or 8,000 uh, retweets, retweets yeah. or likes that that 
tells you that they, you know, those those could be bots doing that, mm-hmm. uh, but he has a constituency that that is their attention span or whatever is is tuned into that length of communication and uh, it's it, it works for him but once people realized that he was using Twitter uh, in particular as as a weapon uh, I think I think the media I don't know how they would have done it. I don't have the wisdom to know that. But they really should have come up with ground rules for what they would or would not. And in a lot of ways, they have. They've, they've, they they know certain things to ignore. But, you know, when he, when every now and then he'll tweet something that just blows everybody's mind. And so they're they're back at the shiny object. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's very clear this weekend that he had a lot of his executive time, as as it, as it states on his right. on his daily agenda. Um, I I imagine you weren't thinking that you would get this deep into the politics early on in your career, but I wanted to transition to one other point. Um, a recent article in which you had written, uh, in which some have suggested that you and one of your articles may have persuaded John McCain to vote no on the repeal of the Affordable. Uh, Care Act, um, and that you—it's—it's it, 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 it's been thought about that you wrote to an audience of one with your piece. Will John McCain save Obamacare and himself um, by describing your own experience? And you've been very open about um, your your own uh, similar uh, de- dealt dealings with autoimmune disease uh, as well. But I just—how did you uh, come to decide to write this piece? Well, it was just a visceral thing. I was watching. The the you know the 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 debate if it was I guess it was a debate about what was going to happen to the Affordable Care Act, and it became increasingly clear that the vote was going to be very close, and I I I, I described in this piece being at my doctor's office, uh, I had this odd range of symptoms and it wasn't really clear what was going on. I wasn't feeling well. I hadn't been feeling well for weeks. And but but I left the office, and this strange thing happened. I first of all looked. I'm walking back home from this medical appointment, and I look at my phone. I check Twitter, and and it says that John McCain, who you know just had had brain surgery, was coming back to vote. And um, and then later that day, I oddly started feeling better. Uh, autoimmune illnesses are very idiosyncratic in the way they pay. Uh, they're mysterious. And I'd never written about any my health issues at all, and, I, and I'm not inclined to do that sort of thing. But I just figured out how... I, I knew how privileged always I felt that I was able to get the medical care that I had access to compared to tens of millions of people. It was just... Um, you know, uh, fortune, good fortune, and uh, that was heartbreaking to me that I that that people were were not as fortunate, and I just had this weird thing that happened, and I just sat down, and I, I'm a slow writer, and but I started writing this piece in which I. I, I, I began with my own experience as a patient, and then uh, turned to to John McCain, and 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 I, I I hadn't posted anything on the New Yorker's website for a while, but I think that I wrote that was probably over two thousand words or something like that, and I wrote it straight. I just mm-hmm. stayed up, 
and I, it was as if my brain wasn't even engaged. It was kind of, it was just downloading. My brain was engaged, but but I wasn't struggling with it. It was just downloading directly from my brain to my uh, keyboard. And uh, I don't recommend that as a, you know, I'm not, I can't prescribe how to do that. It doesn't <laughs> happen, but it happened there. Now, as far as, as far as the audience, I did not think I was writing this to John McCain. And I was not the person who said that uh, I had an influence on his vote. That no, was, you weren't. No. That, that came from actually a right wing uh, website started it. And then there was a complaint that McCain was susceptible to the sort of blandishments from these elite, you know, journalists and, uh, I, you know, that's what they said. I, I, uh, I saw it turned up on my Wikipedia page, but I was not the author of that either. So <laughs> you, you, you are the enemy of the people. Well, right? I'm You're the right. enemy of the people. Yeah. I'm happy to embrace that. It's an honorable role. Somebody's got to do it. You know? I, I volunteer. Readily. Yes. I, th- I, I think that's uh, that, that's an important. Role. So I wanted to ask you also because you know you've done so much good work on Trump. If uh, you you also have a history of working interesting profiles on on people who are interested in deception, people who are con men, people who are uh, sleight of hand performers, mm-hmm. things like that. What gets you engaged in that? What is it your what is it what is it that, that gets you locked into those kind of people? Uh, if I were more self-aware, I could answer that question. <laughs> but I, I really think that uh, it has something to do with knowing that there was, when I was growing up, uh, I was born in 1950 and growing up in Tulsa, and realizing that... Th- Things were not as they seemed, uh-huh. really, and it, and a lot of it had to do with 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 racial, with race relations in that town. Uh, it was not unique in America, of course, but that I went to an all white high school. You know, I, I I did not go to school with a black person until I went to college. I didn't really have. Uh, African-American friends because I, I lived on the south side of town and the, and, the, and the African-American folks lived on the north side of town. And I just, I, I knew that uh, I had this privilege and it made me uncomfortable. Uh, it made me sad in a way, it, you know, claw, whatever you want, liberal guilt, I don't care. But mm-hmm. but that, that awareness that uh, there that this the sort of pronouncements of the people in power were BS. Uh-huh. I think that really went to work. Now I'm going to say something else that I, I say with great temerity, but um, I, I had an older sibling who has uh, a lot of trouble with the truth. Mm-hmm. And I was subjugated to that for a very long time, really throughout my childhood and finally in my 20s or whatever it stopped being a problem for me, but there was a residual need to, I guess, settle the score. And, <laughs> and um, but, you know, I, you mentioned flight of hand artists. Uh-huh. I, I wrote about uh, the great, you know, flight of hand artist Ricky Jay, who had an academic interest in cons and frauds. He's, mm-hmm. he's a real scholar of that. And um, and then I, you know, I, I, I sort of fell into this uh, subject matter that became a book I wrote called Citizen K about a guy who um, was, a, was a convict, 
but I, I but he had a story to tell that was actually a, a, a pretty accurate story, and he told it and leveraged it to get a lot of sympathy and and um, support from people who never met him. But uh, otherwise, he was a, a sociopath, and I. I wrote about him in the New Yorker. It was the first issue that Tina Brown edited. It was, you know, it was the main piece in that magazine in 1992, and I wrote it under an extraordinarily tight deadline. I think I wrote it in 11 days, and and I had reported it for about four weeks before that, and I. I we went through the normal fact checking process mm-hmm. at the New Yorker. And it was, as it appeared in the magazine, factually accurate. But I hadn't gone into this person's crimes, the things that he had that had landed him in prison in any detail at all. He had told me when I went to see him in prison, he was in Memphis in the federal lockup there, uh, that he was innocent. But, you know, all cons are innocent. Right, so yeah. that wasn't part of the story. I, I actually decided to write a biography of him and he agreed to cooperate. And my motive was, um, uh, this story involved Dan Quayle, and it was during the uh, uh, George Bush. When I, when I first wrote it, it was when Bush was running against mm-hmm. Clinton. But I figured that, that, that Dan Quayle was gonna run against, uh, run for president again in, two, in, 19, in, in 1996, right? And I thought, well, if I can tell this story, and it, and it was not flattering to Dan Quayle because it, it implicated him in some wrongdoing, uh, that that would be worthwhile journalistically. Um, and and I started my reporting for the book, uh, and I went and started talking to people that this con artist had recommended that I talk to, this guy named Brett Kimberlin. I, I went and talked to people who he told me to go talk to, and I, I remember I, one guy I talked to was a was an ex-con. He was a you know sort of white collar college grad kid who'd gotten busted for cocaine, whatever, and a very smart, intelligent guy. And he read my piece that had appeared in the New Yorker originally, and he and he and he handed it back to me the next day all annotated and he said this is fascinating revisionist history so that began this sort of scales uh-huh. falling from my eyes and i then with uh, i don't like to say a vengeance but i was very motivated mm-hmm. to find out who this guy was and i i want to make uh clear that at the end of the day i owe dan quayle an apology <laughs> and, uh, I, I mean that sincerely um you you mentioned being a native of Oklahoma. I was watching a, a piece that you read at an event in New York for This Land Press, oh, yeah. uh, which uh, unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. But uh, the work that they were doing and Michael Mason was doing was just really fantastic. But you, right. had, you had this quote talking about Oklahoma in which you said, this place that won't ever go away for me. That was the way you described right. Oklahoma. And and here we are, we're sitting in Oklahoma, right? And, and you, you frequently go here. Um, but... Um, you, 
there's there is something interesting about Oklahoma, and I think we're at a unique point in history. Um, I saw an opinion piece in the Washington Post just a, a couple days ago. Republicans want to turn the entire country into right. Oklahoma, right? I read that. Um, yeah. So, as someone who's who has thought about, uh, you've you've written the book Funny Money. You've thought a lot about sort of the culture of I don't know if you call it Oklahoma's elite, um, but certainly uh, you know a certain group of people within Oklahoma. Do you see similarities in, in what has happened uh, in Oklahoma in the last 40 years and maybe what's playing out right now uh, across America or in the U.S. Capitol or really anywhere? Are, are, those, are there connections that you're seeing made? Well, I, I, I look closely at election results in Oklahoma, uh, especially national election results. And, and one of the things that was most striking to me uh, in 2008, And in 2012, uh, obviously, uh, first uh, McCain and then Romney carried every county in Oklahoma, and they carried by larger pluralities than uh, George Bush had ever had. So what what was it about uh, that election? And, of course, it was that the Democratic nominee was Barack Obama. And uh, let's look at this photograph and see what makes him different. And I, I just always had this somehow this fixation on, on, on race relations in Oklahoma. Um, not, n- not because I was an activist, but because I, I, I had this sense of something being very wrong and unjust. Now, I love Oklahoma. In, in a lot of ways, and there are things about it I greatly dismayed by. And I don't know if, if, if things swung right here more in a more exaggerated way than they did in the rest of the country, but, I mean, uh, this was kind of Tea Partyville, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the problems that Oklahoma is facing now uh, are self-inflicted. For the most part, I think the 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 refusal to, to have a wise fiscal policy to recognize that you uh, you need revenue in order to uh, you got to pay for let's say schools wouldn't that be good you know um, I, I, it, I, I I'm hoping that we no longer have a four day school week in the school districts where it exists now um, I, I, I prefer a five day school week to a three day school week but at, at the rate things are going I don't I don't know what's going to happen and uh, teachers who are qualified also help too instead of just sort of you know emergency placing people in classrooms. We'll pay, we'll pay people then. Yeah. I, I remember I remember being probably eleven or twelve years old. Maybe I was in junior high school, I was twelve and and writing a letter to the Tulsa Tribune about it was either a bond issue or something that had been voted down that was going to raise teacher salaries. And and even at that age I was I was conscious that this was not the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think that Oklahoma's failure to properly fund education has hurt it in ways that are almost hard to measure. But are we part of, is this part of a cutting edge as far as the rest of the country is concerned? I I, I couldn't really say that. I just think that the politicians who represent this state have a tendency to be very uh, 
let's say, not entirely prone to compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> it's a very uh, subtle way to put it. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, and of course, I'm not referring to Senator Inhofe at all when I say that. Um, so it's just a, it's a, it's a frustration that one has with because this really this is where I grew up. This is where all my early memories are attached to this, um, and it. It matters to me, and I, I, I'm still going to write about Oklahoma further in the future. You, you mentioned something about, if, if I could just go back for a second, about the uh, images in the election, in the uh, Obama elections. Have you had a chance to see the portrait that, that I came have. out? I have. What did you think of that? I only saw it um, in an email that someone sent to me, attached to me, but it was unlike any presidential portrait uh, ever made, as, as was the portrait of... of uh, Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. and it's I, I, it's it's. We're, by it's, the way, we are looking at the portrait now. Well, I am looking so. at it now, and <laughs> because I, it's I, you know, his. I have to say that that the uh, the Philbrook in Tulsa uh, acquired one of Kennedy Wiley's paintings mm-hmm. recently, and it's f- amazing when you see it, and his work is amazing. Well, I would really like to see this at full scale, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, he's not smiling mm-hmm. in it. Um, he's looking straight at us, and I think that that is how I think of Obama. Um, he has g- enormous skills oratorically, and and uh, just his interpersonal skills are are r- remarkable. Uh, the background, sort of green leafy background, is that, is that with with these flowers? Yeah, in it? and he does. I mean, in, in Wiley's paintings, one of the things I really like about them when you see them is they become very three dimensional when those background leaves or trees or decorations mm-hmm. or whatever also go around the figure. So they're very much, you know, in, inside of it's like a, a painting that knows it's a painting kind of thing too. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you think that this is sort of a, there's some Edenic theme that he's projecting here? <laughs> I, you know, I haven't, it's, it's been, it's only been unveiled for a short period of yeah. time and I'm not really smart at picking things apart that quickly, but, um, but it's, it's definitely, uh, it's something that, uh, again, any of you who are listening who haven't seen it, call it up and spend some time with it because there's there's a lot there. There's a lot there well, to think it's, about. It's, it's it, first of all, this is a, a great artist, just as a draftsman, and but the way he has uh, Obama looking directly at us, I think, is exactly right. Um, Obama, you know, is famously s- s- criticized for being detached, uh-huh. and and you never really know what Obama. Uh, wouldn't we all like to know what he really thinks today? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I often have fantasized about uh, Michelle and Barack Obama's conversations. Uh-huh. Nowadays, I think many of us have because, yeah. boy, do I want to know. Mm-hmm. What what his take is on... What his take yeah. is. And so what you see here is this, this sort of um, austere, slightly dignified figure who's exercising seemingly great self-restraint. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a very good way to think about well, it. Well, and I mean, mentioning those conversations, I mean, you, what, from what I've read about them, Barack Obama is the essential eternal optimist, right? And Michelle is sort of the muse for that. Uh, a lot of times, sort of the, 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 the person who would bring him back to center. And we certainly saw his optimism come out uh, in, his, in his 2008 campaigns. Um, but well, that, yeah, the, the way in which they're both, I mean, yeah, I, I'd like to know what 
President Obama's thinking, and I'd, I'd also like to know what Michelle's thinking and what those conversations are, because I, I imagine they have varying points of view of, of what today's landscape the, looks very like. Very astute, because the the actually the New York article we were looking at the portrait, which was written by Vincent Cunningham. Uh, the last paragraph of it starts: Obama's truest political gift, perhaps, was the ability to let a thousand flowers of expectation born of history bloom. Ah, uh, ah, uh, it's uh, really uh, nice. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, that that that's the explanation. Then it's not. It's it's not Eden. Uh-huh. It's, it's post-Edenic, but it still, <laughs> yeah. uh, it still leaves you hoping. Um, so, yeah. and, and that was the theme, that, the word that we, that we most associated with Obama. Mm-hmm. The audacity of hope, of yeah. course. Yeah, and where is optimism these days? That's always kind of the interesting it, challenge, well, too. Well, I think, I, I hope that his optimism is not rooted uh, in the size of his book advance, um, but I, I, I really do wonder how one can remain optimistic. I suppose you can you can be optimistic if you think, well, there's nowhere to go but up from here. But meanwhile, the fact is that uh, Donald Trump, for reasons that seem clear to me, but maybe are more complicated, has been determined to demolish every part of Obama's legacy. Um, it's not even ideological it's personal it's visceral this is somebody who cannot stand that obama was as beloved as he was and and so his set out to slash and burn and that's this is one of the issues i have with the with the press um you know being distracted by the shiny object of a trump tweet or some even you know stormy daniels I realize this story came out now about Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, you know, directly paying. It was actually his money. His money. Now, that's that's to avoid any federal election law violation. But it's also, you know, copying to uh, the adultery. And uh, I don't know what Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to do to spin that. I I look forward to hearing that. It's just broken today. (laughs) But in the meanwhile... um, what illusions have there been about Donald Trump? Uh, I, I can't tell the story here, I suppose, but you know, he said something to me once when I asked him, you know, what his innermost thoughts are about what what his. I basically asked him um, if he considered himself ideal company, and he responded in a very vulgar fashion that implied adultery, and um, <laughs> I I just. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know how Obama. I don't know how. I don't think Trump is motivated by ideology. People have said that for a long time, and I, I really do believe that. But that doesn't mean that he's not motivated by bigotry. It's been a real pleasure having you here, Mark. Really appreciate it. Well, great. Thank you for me. joining us. Thank you. 